Hey, welcome to Guitar Knobs, the guitars, gear, noise, and nonsense podcast hosted today by these knobs. Tony Dudzik, pick Guardian. Jared down in Nashville. (laughs) (laughs) Is that Irish? (laughs) What is it? (laughs) You just can't continue on. It's. (laughs) <laughs> Never live it down. Uh, Never let me live hey, everybody, it down. it's me, Todd Novak. Welcome to the Guitar Nubs Podcast. We're thrilled to death that you ooh, are listening ooh, to ooh, our ooh. little show. Podcast. Yes. Uh, we are, hey, Todd. Yes. I brought someone along with me today. That's right. I was about to ask who the person on the line is, but we already know who that is. It's Jared down in Nashville. No. But sitting right across from us. It's my buddy, Steve. Steve. Introduce That's yourself. Me. Well, I'm... Steve Graves, yes, from Columbus, Ohio. Yes, and a friend of Tony's. And uh, yes, well, that's that that gets you on automatically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's, what, what, Steve what? is very humble. He is uh, he has forgotten we'll, we'll get, more about guitars than most people. We're going to touch on we'll, on on when no. Okay, gotcha. Uh, you got to go all, Todd's space. Come on. <laughs> first of all, uh, Tony. Yes. What are a few things that people can experience? If this is the first time you're listening to this show, if... if, if God help you. Uh, true. But what can people expect on our on this podcast? Well, you know, Todd, we like to talk about gear. We like to talk about guitars and amps and pedals and accessories. Oh, wow. All the good stuff. And more importantly, we like to talk about the builders and talk to the builders yes. of this gear. And what else, Jared? We like to do 101s and learn cool stuff. Well, rumor what, has it we're and, doing that today, Jared. You're in that's luck. Right. Because today I love 101s. we're going to do, by popular demand, a Gretsch 101 episode. Oh, wow. Gretsch. I am really excited about this. This is one of those kind of funky brands that people just love but maybe don't fully understand, like me. Um, Gretsch. So, yes, this is going to be very exciting, and Tony is going to crack his mental knuckles and uh, show us all what's lurking in the back of his brain. You know, we always... We <laughs> no, always not all that stuff. We always say, yeah, not that one. Not so, that's a that's separate, my other brain. That's a separate line. Um, <laughs> you know, we talk all the time about how Tony kind of just has an extreme amount of knowledge about gear and guitars and rock and roll history and, and the whole nine yards. And uh, so I was really excited when he said, hey, let's do a Gretsch 101. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we also brought on your buddy Steve here. Yeah, because so, Steve, I won't say he knows as much as I do. <laughs> I probably don't. <laughs> no, but, but as I was saying earlier, I think Steve has forgotten more guitar stuff than most people will ever know. Maybe. Um, I'm going to interrupt myself introducing the, the Steve. But when we were just saying the Gretsch 101, yes. if you are new to the show, and or maybe you haven't heard of 101, what is a 101? It's a deep dive into, in this case, the history of a brand. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, as Jared said earlier, we talk about necks and pickups Parts and different and, things and, like that. But uh, we've had a couple of really good episodes. In fact, one not too long ago on Rickenbackers. 
uh, yeah. the, the, and Japanese pedals and Japanese pedals. And, so it's and it's we've done speakers and vintage amps. Learn you know what to look out for when you're buying a vintage amp. Oh yeah, tubes all the whole nine yards. We've done yep. we've done quite a few. Yeah, and um, when it comes to the brands though, it's really if I think it's fun because that's. You know, we love the lore of these brands, and it's always fun to find out things that are maybe not total common knowledge. So right. the 101, not unlike a college class, is not the expert class. Right. We're not going to cover every single thing. Oh, yes, we are. We're going to cover close to every single thing. <laughs> but at Did bare, you see at the outline minimum, I sent you? I know, but, 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 for, but bare minimum... You know, if you don't have a great knowledge, hopefully you come away with it. I yeah. know I'm going to be really excited because there's a lot I don't understand about Gretsch's. Um, and so you're going to be right there with me. We can look at each other and say, did you know that? I didn't know that. Now we know that. So what would you like to know about Steve, Todd? Well, I, I'm assuming he's sitting here because he knows a lot about guitars. I have a feeling he's owned a few guitars. I have a feeling he's owned a few Gretsch guitars. Uh, that I know would, that, that would be an understatement. I know that he's regularly hanging out with you at shows and stuff. Yeah. Um, and he also helps me out at the shop a couple days a week. Yeah. So some of the fine polishing work. I mean, look at his fingers. I'm assuming he's a, a, a pretty fair player. Yes. And uh Yeah. I would say you probably have more guitars than I do at this point in time. It's entirely possible. I, <laughs> I, I can't tell you exactly how many, but I can tell you that it probably runs into three figures. Three figures. Wow. That's nuts, man. It is. It is. You're absolutely right, Jerry. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That's fantastic. How about, do you know about roughly how many Gretches you own? Well, currently I only own one Gretch, but I, I have owned probably four over okay. the course of my guitar collection Well, that's career. four more than I have, so. Do you want to know how many I own? I do. I'm, yes, tell me. Um, so right now I have, one, two, three. Now he's flexing. I have four or five right now. It took now. you that long to count to four well, or five? Well, because I had to go through I mean, well, visually. I was expecting like, what, 15, 20? No. Like, well, over the years uh, now, I, uh, I, have owned, I have owned, I've owned <laughs> a, a lot of, I've owned some vintage Gretches. Yeah. I've owned a lot of Japanese Gretches. Yes. I own a couple of the newer Korean Gretches. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit more about those. Aside from owning those Gretches. Yes. Um, you, and playing them. And playing them. You, by nature of what you've done for your career, is you handle guitars every day from mm -hmm. all over the world, from all kinds of players, from mm -hmm. all makes and sizes and models and everything. So you've probably had your hands on as many Gretches as anybody who works in a Gretsch factory, I imagine, at this point. Well, I wouldn't say in a Gretsch factory, but certainly... As probably as many as, as to most up, Tony. as most dealers <laughs> have have touched Gretches. Sure. I mean, with some exceptions, I know there's some people that specialize in that sort of thing. But no, I've I've tried. A, I've I've owned a lot. I've tried a lot, and um, and so yeah, I've tried to own a lot. It hasn't worked out. Anyways, okay, let's uh have a few announcements real quick. We need to thank Road. All right. Road. Jared on the late bus. There we go. Uh, thank you, Jared. We need. We said we need to thank Road because they supply our musical equipment, and we yes. are really, really uh, happy that they do that. Don't forget about the Roadcaster Pro. Roadcaster Pro, the Procaster mics, mm -hmm. the NT 
um, the mini USB mm. mics, um, and uh, it's, it's really great stuff. So, What about articulating arms? Do we have those? We do have those articulating arms, I not only on our bodies, but on the desk holding the mics right now. Very nice. This is true. And then Jared's got a, a different one altogether, a road mic over there huh. um, in Nashville. That's so, right. Wow. Um, they've taken really good care of us, though, and the products will take good care of you. So if you're interested in getting a good microphone in front of your face, I would highly suggest checking into Rode. Thanks, Nick, down Nick. in Australia. Uh, I also want to bring up uh, something that is, yeah, unfortunately, top of mind right now. Um, I, and it's it's weird. Like, I'm I'm happy to do this, and I'm also sad to have to do this. Uh, this is for Pedals for Ukraine. Uh, David Gehring of Effects Layouts, as I mentioned, uh, talked to me about this. And we've mentioned it a couple times. We're going to keep doing it for a little while because it seems like things aren't really getting a whole lot better for that situation right now. So I'm just going to read this little piece, if you don't mind. We are a collective of effects pedal makers who have come together to raise money for humanitarian causes. Auctions are going on for handmade pedals from some very talented builders. This is true, and those the number of builders is growing all the time. Here's how it works. Bidding will be done in the comments of each auction post on Instagram. The winning bidder will use the, will use the provided link to make a donation directly to one of the charities that we are going to name off. Um, and uh, then the winning bidder will provide proof of donation, and you will win the pedal. They have decided to focus on the following charities. World Kitchen for, uh, sorry, the World Central Kitchen, the USA for UN Relief Agency, and Doctors Without Borders. The website is, or the email, rather, is pedalsforukraine at gmail.com, and the same for Instagram. Uh, there's a lot of people that really need our help, and you by you choosing to get a uh, probably a one-off handmade pedal, um, you get to you get to be able to do that as well. So consider doing that if you're on the hunt for something new and feel like uh, that that hunt would actually help somebody else out too. Thank you so much to the builders that are doing this and uh, for 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 organizing it for the rest of us to take part in. Now I don't know if uh, if John Esterly is part of that group or he not, is. but he, is. Uh, he has uh, I've seen some some of his postings that he's getting ready to ship out his uh, special Ukrainian uh, cyborg uh, pedals that are mm-hmm. in the Ukrainian flag colors, and uh, he was early, early, early on, and it's a really limited edition. He's donated a, a significant sum of money. Uh, to humanitarian efforts, too. Yeah. So hats off to John at uh, Rare Buzz Effects. Yes, indeed. All right. And um, let's find out what's going on in our music worlds this week. And then we're going to bypass the four on the floor because yeah, let's just get to it. Got to get to the meet. Tony's going to kick us off. Then we'll hear from our friend Steve and then jump over to Jared. Cool. Well, in addition to reading and rereading all of my manuscripts to prepare for this wonderful episode... Um, I'm trying to think there's, there hasn't been a whole heck of a lot, um, other than, interestingly, I, uh, I had a, a buddy that has a Gretsch guitar and, uh, it's a, um, an old, uh, country club model and he had some, uh, some problems because the, the rings that they were using on there were tortoise and they had gassed off and it actually ate some of the what paint. What does that mean when when a gas is off? It's basically the celluloid self-destructing. Okay. So it's because a, celluloid is, is it's an unstable material. 
Okay. I mean, always was, always will be. Right. Um, and but for those that don't know what celluloid is. It is celluloid nitrate in right. this case. There's also celluloid Film acetate. used to be made out of that. Oh, yeah. That's why there's such a, a serious problem in, in archives. In, in archiving vintage film. Yeah. yeah. And they're so. very, you know, it's, it's, it becomes it's very, very flammable. It's a very volatile yes. plastic type and, thing. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was talking to Lindy Fralin about, uh, about celluloid and... Uh, he said, you know, that stuff burns underwater. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we, uh, we caught a piece on fire and dumped it in a bucket, and it continued to burn. Wow. <laughs> um, so it creates its own oxygen. So, it, I mean, it literally will, will burn underwater. That's amazing. Um, so you have to be very careful with I, it. If anybody has seen the movie Inglorious Bastards, which if you haven't, I could not more highly recommend watching that, but it... There, you'll know a scene that I'm talking about where things go absolutely crazy with fire, and that is simply because of a single match in a giant pile of film. Uh, of yeah, yeah, nitrocellulose. Yeah. Film. So, uh, long story even longer. Uh, he his guard, you know, it was a, a nice old Gretsch guard, but it had in one portion the paint had literally been eaten away from the 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 back of the guard. So we had a couple of options. One, of course, was to strip the paint off the back or sand the paint off the back and reshoot it. And I, I, given it some thought, I just said, I, I, I told Jeff that we really ought to just make a new guard. You keep it. I mean, the one that you have is not pretty, but it's in the original. Um, so uh, I ended up making basically an exact duplicate mm -hmm. uh, or as close as I could uh, duplicate of it and uh, shot the back with gold and uh, he was very pleased with uh, with the end result so awesome fantastic one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later on here in uh, in in the Gretsch 101 awesome all right uh, Steve how about yourself anything exciting going in your music world this week well I think what I would like to talk about briefly is uh, something I've been involved with for actually a couple of years, uh, the Columbus Historical Society has put together an exhibit of um, what they're calling the 70s music explosion in Columbus. And uh, uh, this is an exhibit that contains all manner of artifacts from local bands in the 70s. And, uh, Are you Columbus native? I'm a Columbus native, so I, uh, I think that's one of the reasons I was recruited for this committee. Because I, I I lived the '70s in Columbus and and certainly lived the music scene, but um, um, that's been going on since October of last year. Will continue to be on exhibit, uh, I think, through Labor Day is the oh, is wow. the okay. plan. And uh, there are a number of things covered. I mean, there is a there is a room dedicated to kind of an overall uh, you know, national international scene, if you will, of uh, uh, what the music uh, situation was in the 70s, and there were two or three rooms that are focused on uh, on local acts, local music, and uh, uh, actually a number of my guitars are there as part of the exhibit. I have been at the, the society um, like on Sunday afternoons to kind of being a docent, and it's been a real delight to see people's... Are you a uh, decent docent? Uh, I try to be, <laughs> but it's it's been a delight to see the reaction of uh, uh, of many of the guests who, many many of them are from around Ohio, many of them are from Columbus, and uh, they've really gotten a kick out of it because it's brought them back 
memories for them and uh, uh, things that they may not have known about the Columbus music scene and, and, and all this kind of thing. So for those of you who may be around Columbus or in Columbus or traveling through Columbus, uh, admission is free. Takes you know, it's a way to spend an hour. Uh, check out uh, Columbus History, www.columbushistory.org, and there are details and directions and, and all this kind of good thing. So, That's awesome. Yeah, but, nice. Uh, Thanks for doing that, Steve. Sure. Yeah, uh, and you. just in case anybody doesn't know what a docent is, it's you know when you go to the museum and there's suspicious people wearing suits doing <laughs> seemingly nothing, except saying get away from that that's, that's, that's a dozen. they had to come up with a good word to say what's the person standing around doing all this stuff but not really doing anything we need a word that's that's it Those that's it. Was the one yes. yeah all right well that's cool jared about yourself um other than still trying to figure out where i'm gonna put these four hangers that hold like i don't know six or seven guitars i gotta get uh two more but um, I need a new pair of headphones. So, <laughs> okay, actually a couple pairs. So I've got this old pair of A A G A K G A K Gs. Yeah, these are actually my dad's. They come out of his his studio. But every time I'm done with a podcast, using them for a podcast, I I take them off, and then I have this black stuff in my ears because oh. they're kind of deteriorating mm, and getting old. Yeah, and well. then uh, I have a. Um, a blue, excuse me, a Bluetooth set of uh, Bose, and they're doing the same thing. Hmm. I mean, the head the headphones work great; they're com- comfortable, um, they sound great, but they're deteriorating. So I don't know what else to do. Maybe it's you. Just buy new headphones. <laughs> they, what I have some sort of deteriorating <laughs> acid that comes out of the skin around my. Are you ears. made of nitrocellulose? <laughs> I could be. Yeah. That might explain a few things. Well, there's some good stuff out there, Jared. I mean, even our friends at Rode have made a really nice pair of of headphones. And uh, there are a, uh, you know, I mean, there's the whole spectrum from, you know, relatively inexpensive to stupid expensive. Yes. And, uh, you know, try to find something in the middle that you like that's comfortable. Right on. Uh, let's see. What about, How about you, you, Todd? Todd? Well, oh my, do you goodness. need new headphones? I actually, we do. We're working on a situation, a, a scenario for that. Um, so my friend who I was, I hooked up the Vox AC 34 mm-hmm. and uh, the, the gullet guitars 30 or 15. He got it the AC 30. Oh, wow. Um, anyways, he was using a really well, I guess it was from the '90s or so, but it was the Boss. Like, it was the it was the yellow double pedal, like all drive or uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it it's kind of stopped be, being functional. Good. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he his dad bought it for him, and he's so uh, there's yeah. some sentimental value there. But I said, man, makes a nice paperweight. Got a, you've got an incredible guitar, and you've got a fantastic amp, and you need some you need some pedals that that will. Enhance. Enhance that sound and work really well with it. And so we're talking, we're just kind of like starting to scope out what a, a couple drive pedals, um, some delay and, you know, he doesn't, probably doesn't need a, a ton, but just having a couple options and seeing what plays the nicest with, uh, with the AC30 mm-hmm. uh, and some P90s. 
and he's kind of doing, I guess, you know, kind of like lo-fi, almost like uh, Steve Malkmus or, uh, you know, know, Pavement, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Maybe even a little bit of uh, Sonic Youth, some stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe some Husker Du. Does he talk like a regular guy? I know him, and he does. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, that's kind of fun. I always love doing that pavement humor. Yeah. Uh, so that was that's been kind of fun, just kind of noodling around and going, hmm, what what is not going to you know that he can get into and feel comfortable doing? Yeah, yeah. Because there's it's also, not going to break the bank, but there's, there's lots of there's a million pedals out there, and you know that's yeah. uh, that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. But anyhow, so hey, if you have you know what actually, if you've got an AC. Anything, <laughs> if you got a Vox amp, mm-hmm. uh, and you have a particular drive pedal that you say this sounds incredible, mm. and it sounds like what we're talking about, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Let us know what you what you're using and what you really like. Got another big burp right there, Mike. What? All right, so. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, what is that? I don't know. What is it? Who did that? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, anyways. Turn it down, somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Turn it down, Shady boy. Let's get on with this thing that we're going to call Gretsch 101. There's no, I don't have like a little doodad for that. Jared, do you got anything? Gretsch 101. Oh, I like that. That'll work. We'll keep it. Okay, Tony. I can, I can hardly the wait floor for Gretch 102. Is yours. <laughs> Gretch 101. Gretch 101. <laughs> Gretch 101. Steve? No, he's out. Uh, he, I can't talk about that. <laughs> he's, he's not going to. He's, he doesn't want to overstep don't play his, that. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Gretch guitars. Now, Gretch um, historically was not a guitar manufacturer. Drums, they manufacture. So let's let's go back to the late did 1800s. I jump, did I jump too far ahead? Well, you did sort of. All right. Thanks, thanks for raining on my parade once <laughs> again. Thanks, Todd. So um, back in the very beginning, uh, Friedrich Gretsch came over from Germany in the late 1800s and uh, moved to Brooklyn. Uh, worked for a drum manufacturer in Brooklyn. Broke away in the, in the 1880s and started uh, the Fred Gretsch. Instrument Company, or Fred Gretsch Enterprises. Fred Gretsch Company, whatever. He called it that. Um, he wanted, you know, he Americanized his name mm-hmm. from Friedrich to Fred. Um, Fred. But, um, you know, his, um, his, his he, he basically started out in the world of making drums, tambourines, and banjos. Right. And some novelty kinds of things. When those were, were needed for a stage at that time. Yeah, and that they were popular. I mean, the ban- the banjo was, you know, probably the one of the more, most popular stringed instruments of the day. Mm-hmm. Banjo was king of the day. Yes. And it's also the most sensual of all instruments. Um so that really uh, you know, that's kind of the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Um at the end of the 1800s, Friedrich was uh, on a journey back to Germany with his brother, and he died. So his 15-year-old son, Fred, known as Fred Gretsch Sr. at this, you know, at, in later years, um, basically dropped out of uh, school and 
at 15 years old, started running the Gretsch Company. Wow. Which is incredible in and of itself. You know, it's a difference from the fire to the frying pan, um, or back in firing, frying pan into the fire, yeah. whatever you want. Um, so uh, he was really... riveting so far, Tony. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> As long as, as long as it's entertaining to you, Todd. Well, it's, like, it's just good to have an understanding. I mean, this, it wasn't something that came up in the, you know. In yeah. The... So I think we first start to see uh, guitars show up in the 1930s. And again, that is pretty much in reaction to the decline in popularity of the banjo and the increase uh, in popularity of guitars. And w- what spawned that here? Um, 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 tell me, Todd, the, the, the French jazz? jazz stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Django. Yeah. Ragtime. Yeah. And there were, I mean, there obviously were others. So at that point in time, yeah, there were definitely gypsy jazz. There was American jazz and the guitars of that era in the 1930s really were not electric guitars. That didn't come about until really the end of the 30s. But um, there's some great pictures and things. In fact, there's uh, one of Django playing uh, uh, a Gretsch guitar. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, as those, you know, the guitars increased in popularity, and certainly as electric guitars increased in popularity in the late 30s into the 40s, that's when, you know, there's been a shift now to uh, really a drum division, and a guitar division. And over the years, they did make other, you know, other instruments and some novelty types of things, toy guitars and things like that. But I think the focus we're going to talk about today is on mainly, uh, and, and certainly the most popular, were the Gretsch electric guitars. Mm-hmm. We'll touch a little bit on some of the others, the basses and acoustics too. So really, what most people consider the classic years are the 1950s and the 1960s. And this is at a time where, you know, the, you know Chet Atkins becomes mm-hmm. a major endorser. So really what you had, you know, in, in, the, in the 40s and into the 50s, uh, Fred Gretsch Sr. decided to retire. Uh, one of his sons, Bill Gretsch, took over the reins. He died early, unexpectedly. So Fred Gretsch Jr. became really, and, and he, he came into power really at the end of the 40s, into the 50s, and the 60s. And, that, you know, those it, most people would consider the classic Gretsch years. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the 60s, uh, there apparently wasn't a suitable heir to the throne. So Gretsch was sold to uh, Baldwin Organ Company. And most people would agree that the 1970s were not a good time for Gretsch um, under the toolage of, of, of Baldwin um, because they basically closed the factory down in Brooklyn, a 10-story building that uh, Fred Gretsch Sr. built, and uh, moved production to Arkansas. And most people would say that um, they could not build Gretsch guitars in Arkansas. Hmm. And there's just some really unusual things. Now, some people like the, the you know, some of the, the gimmicky kinds of things that they came out with at that time frame. Uh, but I think most people agree. Which that, we will get all into. Yeah, so we'll, don't we'll worry do, about we'll it. We're, we're, we're just getting an overview right now. Correct. Um, that leads us uh, into the 1980s. Yeah, let me just touch on something really quick. So the 70s, 
we hear it's it's interesting because seventies was a, a, another explosion of rock and roll. Yes, massive, massive explosion of rock and roll. Proper it, rock it, and roll, but it's also a time where most uh, American guitar Gibson, companies. Gibson was not so bueno. No, Fender got owned by CBS. CBS. Not so bueno. Gretch, uh, Gretsch and whom else was acquired by Baldwin? Uh, might have uh, been Guild because uh, Avnet was like okay. the parent company. Yeah, so there was all these big companies gobbling up things that were, that were really good because and they making would, them bad. Yeah, they wanted you know everybody had to have a musical instrument uh, company in their portfolio. Yeah, and you know running a corporation or a corporation trying to run a, uh, a whether it's a family business or a you know, somebody that's really interested in guitars in this case, uh, you know, by the time you push it through the accounting department, the end result is generally not good. Mm -hmm. So yeah, at Gibson, you had the Norlin era in the 1970s. I believe the corporate term for that is doo-doo. <laughs> yes, you are correct. <laughs> I well, love, I love that <laughs> In the 19, early 80s, like 1983, um, Avnet, who owned... Uh, uh, Guild and uh, also uh, Gretsch filed bankruptcy with, along with Baldwin Organ. And uh, one of the uh, executives at Baldwin actually bought the Gretsch name and hired Smart person. Uh, an old timer to help run the company. Around 1985, uh, Fred W. Gretsch, who is, a, is the current uh, owner and president, president, um, he uh, he took over the reins in the 80s, and that leads us into the 90s and the early 2000s, which to a lot of people, myself included, I think There's in some cases— resurgence. Well, there was a big resurgence, and it was an incredible increase in quality because they were being made in Japan mm. and mostly made in the Tarada factory, uh, who also made a lot of Fender Japan things. But the, in my opinion— and a lot of other people's, the Japanese Gretches that came out in the 90s and into the 2000s are some of the best Gretsch instruments ever made. Um, and so just because it's old don't mean it's good. Yes, we'll talk more about that. Just like you. So uh, all in all, Sorry. and you know, in, in the early 2000s, um, they struck a deal with Fender to oversee production, distribution, uh, but they still, uh, Fred W. Uh, maintained the ownership. So the family still owns Gretsch, uh, but Fender uh, really is in charge of, of, of production and uh, in the distribution side and product development. So it's kind of like they hired Fender to do, you know, kind of kind of the some of the dirty work, I guess, to, mm -hmm. in order to get, you know, get the stuff out the door. And in some cases, you know, because of Fender, there's a incredible, incredibly expansive line of guitars, mm -hmm. some that are made, they make some, a, a handful in, in the U.S., some that are still made in uh, Japan, some in Korea, and some in China and Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So I think they, what they were able to do by opening it up to Fender in the 2000s is they were able to expand production facilities. Yeah. And offer, in in a lot of cases, lower priced instruments, um, and and hopefully maintain you know the quality and things. I think it's also worth mentioning you know when you're going back to the the '80s era, um, you know that was still a time where uh, videos 
and magazines were still reigning, you know, pretty much supreme. Mm-hmm. And with a couple of key people gracing the pages and TV sets with a big giant Gretchen hand, you know, Billy Duffy mm-hmm. and uh, Brian Setzer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, because they are, and it's fun to see. Just like what what Tom Petty did for Rickenbacker. Oh yeah, yeah. Becker. I mean, it, dang it, it's it's fun. <laughs> get it. <laughs> it's fun to see some of these wee Oral little guys with a with a big, big, big Gretsch guitar strapped on. So cool. And you know, it's yeah. It, and they're and in all honesty, most of them are very comfortable to play. Wouldn't you say, Steve? I mean, they're, they're I, I the hollow bodies so. in particular are are light. Uh, they sound great. Um, Despite being hollow, there's not. I've I've never really experienced a lot of problems with feedback. Have Have you? I have not. Yeah. No. And these don't have center blocks. I mean, they're a full hollow body guitar. Yeah. On that that portion of the line. So, uh, so that's a brief history of Gretsch and Gibson. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> at the time, um, but um, one of the things that comes up all the time is people don't understand the Gretsch model number system. And quite honestly, it's like, uh, you know, they, it, it's kind of haphazard mm-hmm. at best. Um, what it stems from a lot, um, most of the guitars from the 1950s and 60s are in the 6,000 series. So what I'm told is like 4,000 series for catalog numbers were drums, 5,000s were uh uh, either acoustics or banjos or something like, like that. It's like the kind of goofy Rickenbacker Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, it's even worse than Rickenbacker okay. um, because um, generally speaking, the, it, it, you know, you, you, you think of something like the, the classic 6120. That's the big body, usually the orange model that has the, the brand and things. That, that, that's, you mean the big G? Yeah, the big G brand. Mm. And, you know, guitarists like, like Eddie Cochran played that. And, and uh, Dwayne Eddy played one as well before he shifted over to Guild. Um, and, of course, Chet Atkins, uh, who had several, you know, models and, and several um, models named after him. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally speaking, in the 1950s and 60s, like for instance, let's use 6120. Um, the six stands for guitar. Okay. The one stands for electric. And then the third and fourth digits are usually some combination of the model number and the color. Hmm. So like a true 6120 would be the orange. Um, there's a 6122, there's a 6124. <laughs> so it's, it gets crazy. Right. Um, and and, there, and they, like I said, there's generally not a lot of rhyme or reason to that numbering system because, you know, you had full hollow body guitars, big bodies, and, and, and then you also had things like some of the, you know, the Jets, uh, and then full solid bodies, and they're all 61, blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, I, I, at some point, you'd think they would have run out because of the, the color combinations and things that they did. Um, and then, of course, there's always or usually a model name uh, after the the 61 whatever. So it, it, it gets a little confusing, but um, 
if you if you know what you're looking for, I think you can kind of narrow down the uh, the craziness a little bit. Um, in the 1970s, in their infinite wisdom, Baldwin said, "Okay, let's change the six to a seven. Oh boy! Yeah. So you know, you have a lot of instruments that were made in the 70s that have that. You know, it's now it's a 7120 or 7122 or whatever." In the 1980s and 90s, the letter G was added to the usually what was the accepted, you know, like the 6100 series. Uh, and that was to differentiate that between a true vintage piece and, and the actual uh, reissue. And then, of course, <laughs> in the 2000s under Fender, um, you had 600, 6000 series. He had the 5000 series, was, which was the Electromatic series, or still is the Electromatic series. And now, of course, we have the 2000 series, which is the Streamliner series. So those are the least expensive of, of the Gretsch line, um, and then all the way up to the 6000 series. So it, it gets a little confusing, and especially with the modern stuff. It gets very confusing. I'm but, confused. Uh, basically, if you think about it, the 6000 series are the true vintage reissues. The 5000 series are pretty much um, inspired by many of the vintage models. The 2000 series are really the entry level with some inspiration uh, from, from vintage models. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm going to interject here and just because I know you you have an an agenda which is is good and it's going to take us through this. I just wanted to find out from both of you what what do you think it is? Because everything every guitar that we like, every brand, every, all the history there's there's usually an it factor for it. What is the it factor for the Gretsch? And I I realize there's. Several different body styles and yada da, yeah. da 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 da. But if you if you take that out of the equation, there are commonalities across all of all of the models. Mm -hmm. Those equate potentially the it factor, or is there something else? Steve, you want to handle that? Well, I'll be happy to start. Um, I think with Gretsch's, for me. Well, let me let me backtrack for a second because in in terms of electric guitars, uh, I tend to gravitate toward Telecasters and semi hollows. Um, so Gretsch's for me are kind of a nice in between, in as much as uh, I love a twangy guitar, and and Gretsch's at their best will twang with the best of them. Mm -hmm. um, as Tony and and I were were saying earlier. Uh, they're really pretty comfortable to play. They're they're not overly heavy. You know, in terms of an it factor, I, I think it's, um, it, like I say, for me, it's probably the twang factor. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, it's got that not quite the, the sharpness of a Telecaster, but it's got the, um, a very country flavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, that translated, I think, to early rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you had, you know, people like Eddie Cochran playing them, and you had, uh, of course, uh, uh, Chet Atkins, who, you know, is in a league of his own in terms of style of music. I mean, he was termed a country artist, but, mm -hmm. I mean, he was, I mean, I would, I think he's more of a, a jazz player. He, he was just an incredible uh, guitar player. 
But I think when you when you when you think about um, a Gretsch, it's it's almost you know in the ter- in the world of rock and roll, like a big fat body uh, Gretsch guitar is almost uh, a contradiction in terms. Um, so I think there's a lot of players that pick them up. Now there's some players like Setzer, for instance. All of his idols played right. Gretsch guitars. Right. And if you're in a rockabilly band, yeah, you can't you'd better have the, a Gretsch guitar. You'd better guitar. have yeah, a yeah, Gretsch. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in, in the case of uh, you know, someone like Billy Duffy, I, I think that is almost, I, th- I think he liked the sound of it probably, but it was also, you know. It was a huge presence on stage. Yeah. And I think it was almost, you know, a, a you know, screw you mo- kind of moment where he says, I'm going to play this. Check it out. Hmm. And there's other bands too that, you know, that, that it does, you know, part of it is the sound, but I think most of it is, is the image and the look. And, you know, like I said, some of these I'm wanting something a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, this is a, something that is common with my personal line of, of thinking is like, if you can, if you're going to do it, uh, like I, for better or for worse, I, I usually try to find something that isn't exactly like yeah. everybody else has. And they the, the, Things that we're going to go through, the idiosyncrasies and <laughs> and little little nuances, it, it are the things that you can kind of relish. And yeah. Gretches are full of them. Yeah. Oh yes, that they are. <laughs> I've got a big old list of yeah. idiosyncrasies. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. And, no, and I think that's a fair question because I think a lot of people look at it and they say, well, you know, I could get that, or I can get a Gibson, or I could get, you know, a Guild Electric jazz box or you know any other number of, of things and i think there's just something it, it's the combination of the colors it's the combination of the materials like you know who would think Gretches are not guitars uh, uh, apologetic guitars in any way shape or form no especially if you go to something like a white falcon or, or a silver or jet or yeah or any of the, i mean they yeah. are they are in your face guitars yeah there's no doubt about that let's 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 just do a little toe dip we're gonna hit models, pickups. We're gonna talk about the vibratos. We got bridges, position markers, idiosyncrasies, um, players, pitfalls, and unsung heroes. Yes, we're gonna get through all that. Let's Are you do it. sure we can fill an hour? <laughs> with uh, that? Yeah, let's <laughs> at do least. It. So let's talk about models. Yes. So I think the guitar that comes to mind, at least to most people, to me especially. Um, when you say Gretsch, is the big fat body jazz box. Uh, I think at the time, Chet Atkins was was working with Gretsch to develop a a, a jazz box that he could use. Um, uh, and, you know, so the, the very first 6120s had uh, a pick guard that said Gretsch, but in like a signpost, it said Chet Atkins. So it was a true Chet Atkins model. Mm-hmm. That comes to mind for me. Um, there's various uh, derivatives. You, know, you mentioned the White Falcons, right? Uh, Country Gentleman, which was another version of that. A Tennessean, which also was you know, uh, part of that that whole brigade. Um, but and those, those are all varied widths and and uh, yeah, they're, accessories. They're, yeah, and they're they're pretty big body guitars. Yeah, and and various thicknesses too. Yes, like the you know the sixty one twenties are pretty thick. The you know the country gentlemen are very thin. It's more like a three thirty five. Yeah, something. closer to the three thirty five. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, one of the things, you know, so we, that's the hollow body line. There's the jet line. So you think of like duo jets. You think yes. of jet firebirds, things like that. 
most people think that those are solid body guitars. Yes. And if you think that, you'd be wrong. Interesting. Because the uh, most of the Jets um, are actually a um, mahogany back mm -hmm. that has all the scoops, stuff scooped out for the pickups and the controls and everything. And on top of that is glued a pressed plywood maple top. Right. So there's... The empty yeah. space underneath so you think it. like Malcolm Young or Billy Zoom. Exactly. Yeah, those are, I call them semi-hollows because of the way they're constructed. They were meant to look like they were full solid body guitars to compete with, you know, the Gibson Les Pauls at the mm -hmm. time. Um, so those are very interesting guitars. And, 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 of course, the manufacturing varied over the years. So there's... You know, there's some variations thereof, but if you want to think about that. Now, they're also offered true solid body guitars, things like the Gretsch Corvettes. And there's a, a couple of derivatives there. They made some for Bo Diddley. The, everybody kind of knows the rectangular guitar. Right. Or the Jupiter, which, uh, you know, they made originally for Bo Diddley. And then Billy Gibbons yeah. resurrected that. Um, so those are true solid bodies. They also made basses. Not very popular, at least in most circles. Uh, probably the only person I know that played one uh, would have been Peter Tork from the Monkees. And that mm. was part of an endorsement deal, I think. Um, and then they also made a line of acoustics. Again, not hugely popular, but they're kind of cool in some ways. Like, the, for instance, the Gretsch Rancher uh, was a flat top, um, had an adjustable bridge, but it had a kind of a triangular sound hole. Uh, which was really cool. Oh, so, um, but I think that you know the main focus of what we'll be talking about will be on the electrics. Yeah, and whether they be hol full hollow bodies, jets, or yeah, those uh, other things bore me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you probably <laughs> dig the rancher. Yeah, maybe because it's got that triangular yeah, thing there. Okay. It's different. It's right, very yeah, different. No, I get it. I get it. Okay. Jared, did you want to talk about pickups? Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk pickups in, in terms of Gretsch's. Um, so early on, uh, most uh, of the models had uh, D'Armond pickups. Uh, they called them Dynasonics when it made it over to the Gretsch side. But essentially, they were the same single coil, uh, adjustable pull piece, uh, D'Armond pickups that you'd find in other guitars. Right, and, and adjustable just being they're all screws. Yeah. And uh, Row Industries made D'Armond pickups. That's and right. And Row Industries were located in... Beautiful Toledo, Ohio. Ohio City. Yes. Well, you, you talked about adjustable pole pieces. The one cool thing about them, Todd, is while the pole pieces themselves were magnets... They had a little screw that had a mechanism that raised and lowered the actual pole piece. Mm. So you didn't screw the like on a Gibson where you would adjust the height of the of the screw. Right. You, the screw actually has a spring that goes down underneath and a little arm, and that's connected to the pole piece, which raises and lowers based on where you turn the screw. Mm. Do we know what year those were developed? I would say that those came out really in the, I mean, maybe late 40s, but certainly into the 50s. It I mean, seems um, excessively complex. Because I know oh, uh, cool. Gibson, Gibson had drawings of their staple pickups, which 
function the same way in 1952. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that those, I mean, I think there was a lot of activity in the late 40s in terms of developing pickups for guitars because it was a brand new industry. Yeah. Um, but certainly by the 50s, I think uh, the Armand was uh, pretty well into manufacturing and they, they made them for a lot of other companies oh, yeah. too. Um, around 1954, and this is this is a critical year because um, there is some controversy over who controversy. who came up with the humbucking pickup. Uh-huh. Was it Ray Butts who worked for Gretsch or Seth Lover who worked for Gibson? Mm. Seth Lover. Well, you may have been brainwashed into that. But no, it Gibson was Gibson w- Gibson was was faster at filing the paperwork, but there are actually photos of prototypes that uh, Ray Butts was developing along with Chet Atkins. Uh, on the f- some people would consider it the first humbucking pickup, which pre I mean they were almost developed simultaneously. Seth Lover was doing stuff. Ray Butts was doing stuff. But, you know, uh, Gibson beat Gretsch to the punch. And then one of the interesting controversies of this uh, was at some point, uh, Gibson was going to pursue um, preventing uh, Gretsch from using Filtertrons because they said, well, it's it's a humbucking pickup. We own the patent on it or at least it's been applied for. And then apparently... I've got a question about that, though. Okay. I need to interrupt. I need to... Was there... And I don't know everything about pickups, I admit, but did did Filtertrons not run in parallel? I always thought that, but they actually... Uh, they run in series. Like run in a, series? Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. They do. Be, and I that always thought it was because of the low output and the brightness, um, mm-hmm. uh, just so everyone knows what we're talking about. And when you have two coils of a pickup, um, if you run them in series, meaning one coil leads into the lead of the other coil, it creates usually a more mid-rangey kind of beefy tone. Certainly Single louder. path. Single path. Single path. A parallel wired humbucker. You still do Too get bad. humbucking, but you have uh, basically the leads are, you know, the hot from coil A is tied to the hot of coil B and the ground and ground mm-hmm. and so on. So what generally happens there is it increases the brightness, but it lowers the output. So um, it's a if you ever play with, you know, switch wiring and push pulls and things like that, you can get some really cool tones by if you have a four conductor uh, lead on your on your pickup. Um, that actually works well with P100s. Oh yeah, yeah. Those those yeah, are they're, sometimes they're really hot. Yeah, they're almost too hot. But back to Ray Butts versus Seth Lover. Um, so there was apparently some uh, some thought about preventing Gretsch from using uh, Filtertrons, but uh, Mr. Gretsch uh, sat down apparently in private with Mr. M- McCarty who was president of Gibson at the time. And they both basically agreed to live and let live. Hmm. So 
Uh, that means that Gibson was. Would love to have been a fly on the wall there. Oh, I think there was probably yeah. a little little heat initially. Yeah. But you know, truth be told, both were developed at probably the same time, and it was just a, a natural thing. You know, any engineer that said, "Oh, well, let's see if we can get rid of some of the sixty cycle hum." Yeah. And that's how you did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but I always I, I always found that interesting. And you know, Ray Butts, of course, doesn't get the credit I think that he deserves sometimes. Right. Um, well, they, they sound wildly different. Oh, yeah, they're totally different pickups. Yeah. Yeah, and part of it is because Gretsch pickups are lower wind, lower output. Right. And Gibsons are usually higher wind and more output and thus more more midi, mid-rangey. Um, in the 1960s, uh, kind of to replace the uh, Dynasonics, because Gretsch didn't want to buy them from... Uh, Diamond. From Diamond at that time. They uh, developed what they call Hylotrons. And basically, the Hylotron is, is their version of, of... I mean, it's a simplified version of, of, <laughs> of a Dynasonic. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, but it, it, they put those in some of their lower-end models, and they're actually really cool pickups. Um, I, I like, you know, the Hylotrons. Steve, you probably had a, a couple that have Hylos, right? I did. I don't anymore, but you're right. They... They are are unique. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you like the sound uh, of like the Diarmons, it's oh, wait, what's like, the sound yeah. that we're talking about here? It's a single coil sound. Okay, so they're a little noisier, but um, they're it's it's brighter. Right. It's you know more stratish or tellyish. Okay. Um, is that is that reminiscent of what we would have seen like in a lot of the '60s, like Japanese style guitars? Those like like all kinds of crazy. Single coils. Well, these were better made, I think. Okay. I mean, there, there's definitely a, a higher quality. And they, they, you know, Gretsch put them in you know, a lot of their Corvettes, mm-hmm. uh, that they, the solid body guitars. They even put them in uh, like the Tennessean. Um, in, 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 again, it was just, a, a, I guess, a cost savings thing instead of putting a full humbucker in. Um, towards the end of the 60s, they also developed what were called uh, uh, Supertrons. And those are just kind of higher output uh, filtertrons, and the, you 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 know they're supertrons because they have a uh, a bar instead of pole pieces. So you know if you when you see something like that it has a blade on both sides right. instead of pole pieces. Was uh, that one of the first uh, blade style? It probably pickups? was. I mean, I mean that came out in probably the you know sixty eight. I'm pretty sure that that was, uh, you know, an early development of using a blade instead of pole pieces because you really don't see that until probably the 70s when Bill Lawrence was doing things with blades and, you know, and then, of course, other people have done it over time. Yeah. So. Interesting. So okay. those are, those are the, the I mean, there and there's other pickups too. And yeah, there's some stuff a, that were made in Japan and that we won't get into that, you know, came in the 70s and right. things like that. But these are, and to me, are the four main pickups. And, and without you, getting into this in great detail, and then you have someone like TV Jones basically coming in and, and playing a, a huge part in that well, as well as far as that yeah, style Yeah, Tom pickup. came in. I mean, he was hired by, uh, by Gretsch to basically redevelop reverse engineer uh the dynasonics gotcha uh for for fen or for uh, gretsch japan or okay tarada right and um so but then he also he uh, tv jones tom jones is probably the most knowledgeable guy 
when it comes to Gretsch pickups. I mean, he knows them inside out. He sure. has an incredibly good, uh, well-made... And a great line for all kinds of varying tastes on what you might like Yes, from, with that kind of style of pickup. Yeah. All right, what's what's next? Well, Gretsch never really developed their own vibrato. Um, there's a lot of guitar models, like the 6120s, uh, that have Bigsby's. And again, the Bigsby was kind of, um, would you say an upgrade, Steve, to to some of the model line? I would say it was definitely an upgrade. Yeah, because they, they, they basically, a lot of, you'll, you'll see some Gretsch models, like country clubs and things like that, that have a, um, a steel tailpiece that has a G cut into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of people have taken those off and put Bigsby's in their place. Um, but a lo- many were you know, either factory optional or factory, factory original. So Bigsby's were kind of the, uh, especially on the, on the big you know, jazz box bodies, that was the standard. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, they may have had some custom done. I mean, Guild did the same thing with theirs where they were um, marked as Guild, but they were made, obviously, they were made by Bigsby. Um, in the 60s, the only other vibrato that I'm aware of was uh, made by Burns in the UK. And they used those on a lot of their, uh, like the Corvettes, a lot of the solid body things, because those were essentially designed for a flat top solid body guitar. So that's really the only two types that I've ever seen on, on Gretsch's. Steve, have you seen anything other than that? That covers the gamut as far as I know. Yeah. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, how about Bridges? Did you say Bridges? How about bridges? Let's talk about Bridges. So, I mean, a lot of the early uh, Gretches have a, a rosewood bridge, carved rosewood bridge that you'd see on, you know, on Gibsons, on any, you know, semi-acoustic guitar of the day. Um, but one of the first things they came out with was a, was termed a Melita bridge. And the cool thing about that, it was one of the first adjustable uh, bridges. And it was still, you know, what... We, you know, what we would call a, um, a floating bridge because it literally sits on top of the guitar and is held in place by string tension. So there's a base that sits on the guitar, usually two posts that come up, and then uh, the actual saddle piece, or, uh, and, and that sits on the top, and that's adjustable. But with the Melita bridge, each of the individual saddles were adjustable to improve intonation. So that was kind of like their take, I guess, on like the Tunematic that that uh, Gibson developed, and it allowed for uh, again more accurate um, intonation. But <laughs> interestingly enough, this always cracks me up because at the same time, or maybe a little bit later, they also had. Um, what was called the solid bar bridge. And what that was, was literally think of like a round lipstick tube that had six slots in it and zero intonation. Mm. (laughs) And we see, I mean, and they used it and a lot of people love those bridges because of their simplicity, but there's no way you can intonate the guitar with that. Um, And they they still use that on some models too. And they do. Yes. Um, 
there's also, uh, for a period of time, they used the um, intonated uh, Bigsby uh, bridge. So it's like, you know, the piece on the top was made of cast aluminum, uh, but was not adjustable other than the notches that they, or the, you know, the, I guess the saddles that they molded into that piece. Um, there was also a, a, a bridge that came out later in the 60s called the, uh, the Space Control. And what that allowed for was basically six uh, cylinders, I guess, for that the string sat on. And you could actually adjust the, uh, the spacing at the bridge. Mm. It didn't really provide intonation. But it did provide, you know, let's just say, you know, the E strings were hanging off the edge of the uh, the neck at, on the upper frets. You could bring those in, and then you know, get everything spaced out a little bit better. Mm. So, um, and then of course there's others, some the stuff that came out in the '70s. But those, in in you know, it, by and large, are what was used. Um, do you think that that's an intimidating factor for a lot of players? Is having essentially a, f- a floating bridge? It is, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in the idiosyncrasies section. Okay, perfect. Because what a lot of people do um, is they, it's called pinning the bridge, they pin the bridge in place so that it can't move, or mm. at least the part that goes to the top of the body. And that's, a, that's actually a pretty good uh, method of making sure that you don't lose or things you know go let's just say the string tension drops, especially if you're using a vibrato, mm-hmm. and suddenly the bridge slides towards the neck. Right, right. And then you got bad intonation. Right. You got no intonation. Yeah, or none. <laughs> um, some of the other cool things uh, are the are the position markers that, uh, that Gretsch used. Um, of course, some models just had dots, like, you know, any other guitar. Right. Um, Earlier, uh, you know, 50s models had uh, blocks. Um, and then um, some of the models, things like, uh, um, you know, the 6120s, some of them had actually um, engraved and marked with you know, various, like, Western theme kinds of things. Um, they did some really cool stuff with their inlays. Is it fair to say, though, that they're kind of known for... I guess, you know, the, the, the half moon kind of... At well, the... towards, yeah, in the 60s, that became the, um, the, the half moons or the neoclassics, as they call them. And it's basically like a, a, a thumbnail on the, on the upper, uh, uh, on the base side of the, yeah. of, the, um, of, the, of the fretboard. On the low E. On the low area. E, so when, you're looking, the low e. so when you're looking down, you can tell where your fingers are. Yep. Um, but the other cool thing that they did on a lot of models, uh, especially on the jets, uh, they took the block and then they put like a hump on one side of it. So we call it, you know, typically they're called uh, hump top blocks. Mm-hmm. So it's... <laughs> it's a hump top block. Yes. But it's, but it's a cool feature and it's, it's yeah, something that it's nobody else was doing, else. Yeah, which, which I think is, is, is really kind of, you know, says... Gretsch. Mm-hmm. Nothing says Gretsch like a nice hump top block. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, a, or a thumbnail. Or a thumbnail. You like those. All right. Let's talk idiosyncrasies. Yes, and there are a lot of them. Yes. I mean, as cool as Gretsch guitars are, um, 
they do have a lot of strangeness to them. And some, some things that people don't like. Um, but, you know. You Can gotta, I tell you my, my thing that I most don't like? I know what it is, but go ahead. Oh, you do? What is it? it probably the pad on the back. No. Ooh, that's another, that's, well, <laughs> I, it's not that, um, it's just a weird thing that I don't necessarily understand. Okay. I don't know that it's something that I dislike so much, uh, but what I don't like, uh, especially on some of the smaller guitars, you know, like the, the Jet series is, is that the height of the pick guard is so close to the height of the strings, um, and that is very bothersome to me. It depends on the era. It, it does. I, later ones, so more modern it's ones. The more modern I've ones. I played two that are mo- that are modern made. Yep. And I, I I was I was like, nope, can't do it. Yeah. Nope. Well, the the reason that especially on the newer ones and mostly their import ones uh, is they set the neck deeper into the body because if you look at a vintage Gretsch. A lot of times the neck sticks out fairly significantly. Kind of like a a rig. Yeah, yeah, very much. It's about the same height. And, um, you know, back in the the 50s, uh, the material that was used on the pick guards was three-sixteenths of an inch thick, which is heavy. I mean, I I try to keep the stuff. I mean, I I do duplicate them in three-sixteenths, but um, I usually like to use eighth-inch. Because, three sixteenths, four sixteenths, whatever it takes. Well, you know, an eighth is two sixteenths. Yes. <laughs> but what you're describing, I think, is is probably more common on newer models that have a deeper set neck. Deeper set, and and it still has a super thick pick guard. So it's like it, it's just yeah, you run you're, into it. If you're doing little picking stuff, as you're not going to get bothered by that. But as soon as you're doing any chords, it's like, Bleh. Steve, do you have an idiosyncrasy? That you like or dislike things that bug you about Gretsch's? Well, I I don't know that this bugs me about Gretsch's. I I think uh, just the the controls, the the pickup <laughs> switching and the 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 tone and the uh, uh, the myriad of switches that you sometimes <laughs> have to navigate to you know to to get a sound is just uh, it it takes some getting used to. Oh I mean, yeah. Now you know the flip side of that is it gives you some versatility in terms of tone and sure. and and selection and that kind of thing, but it it does take some getting used to. Oh yeah. Well, let's go through the list. Yes, let's do. So um, I just kind of put these together. So the G brand, the big G on the back you, that you see on the front, on the front, uh, like I, you said, I, well, I meant by the back, the back meant, of the guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the butt end of the guitar. Yes, that's yes. the one. The butt, the G on the butt. Now, that doesn't show up on all models, but a lot of, you know, the ones that come to mind are like, the, you know, the true country 6120s yeah. that have the, you know, scribed inlays. It looks like a brand. It's a G it's brand. Like branding. Yeah. Like and and originally, brand. interestingly, the original series, the original ones, uh, were actually branded. No kidding. They actually branded. Now, later models in the reissues, it's, it's an inlay. Yeah, uh, that they you know scribe in and, uh-huh. and drop it in, but yeah, the the very earliest ones did have a true G <laughs> burned into the wood. Amazing, yes. Um, so if you run across them in a garage sale and it looks all janky on the back, buy it <laughs> <laughs> or don't or don't. 
Now, this is one of my pet peeves. Oh. Although I understand why they do it, and a lot of guitar companies were doing it in the, at the time, is the zero fret. Right. Um, That's a weird thing just in general on guitars. Well, it is and it isn't. Um, because in theory, it provides a quick way to raise and lower the action because your zero fret is taller than the rest of the frets on the, on the fretboard. Um, at that point, the nut just really becomes nothing more than a guide. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people have taken old Gretches, Brian Setzer included, and taken off the zero fret and extended the nut so that it's a, it's a true uh, nut. A true nut that yeah also is is, is at the, the zero point of the of, right. the, of the fretboard. Um, but yeah. The, the problem I think you run into with, with zero frets is eventually uh, the, the strings from their vibration actually start to wear ruts into them. And at some point, you have to replace the zero fret. Right. Um, which generally isn't a big deal, but um, it's not something that you want to have to do too many times. Otherwise, you start tearing up the, the rosewood and, right. and it's a mess. So that, that's my pet peeve. Standby switch. Standby switch. That's a cool feature. Although there's so many switches sometimes on some of these models that it's maddening. But the standby switch was really... Where is that typically located on these models? Down uh, by the controls, by the bridge. Okay. Uh, under the bridge. And what it was meant for, as it would st stand to reason, is if you had it either in the down position or the up position, um, it would basically short the signal to ground right. and make it quiet. Right. So anytime you wanted to play, it would be in the middle position. Right, because otherwise you stand, you, you stand the, the uh, possibility of your guitar going into a howl as you're waiting for the slide guitar guy to finish up. Yeah, or if, it's in, or if you're in between sets and yes. you didn't want to have to worry about turning down the, the yes. volume on your, on your guitars and such. In lieu of a tuner pedal... In lieu of a tuner this pedal, is a good option. <laughs> you got to remember, this is the I, 1950s I get, I and 60s. Get I get it. Okay, but it's actually kind of a cool feature. But it, as Steve said earlier, the myriad of switches and knobs and things can be maddening. And once you learn the guitar, you yeah, know, to work with the guitar, it it it, may, it starts I mean, to make I, sense. I resorted to using my neck pickup in the Les Paul Special as the very same thing. I just turned the volume all the way down in a neck pickup because I never use it. Mm -hmm. And then that was just sort of like, a, all right, I'm standing by. <laughs> standing by. Yeah. Um, another Tone type. toggle switch. Yeah, that's, in my opinion, can be um, a little limiting because basically it's a three-way switch that um, a lot of people call them mud switches because mm. the values of the caps that are used on them can be just really non-useful. Mm. And it basically allows the player to have either straight open or on one side it goes through one series of caps and resistors and, or to the other side. And basically it's there just to change the tone at like a preset level. Okay. And again... It's not for everyone. It's because a cool doohickey. It's a, it's a doohickey that doesn't necessarily 
enable every player to use it usefully. Is it arguable that it might have been more useful for jazz and maybe possibly slower country kind of stuff like yeah. old, old timey country? Yeah, I mean, it's it, in, in some ways it's not that much different than uh, the old Esquires. Uh, that you know had one pickup, but it had still had the switch, right? And you would go through a series of you know mud, right. yeah, none or straight out to the the, the output. Gotcha. Channel. Okay. Master, Master volume. volume. So this is another thing that gets confusing to a lot of first time Gretsch players, right? Because because now you got a you got a, a, a knob. Well, there's a knob usually in near there's the cutaway. Knob, there's a knob everywhere. There's a knob <laughs> knob on a Gretsch. But in addition, you've got. Um, other volume controls, usually for each pickup. And then sometimes there's another knob for the tone. Um, and it's just, there's a lot going on. And it's, it's not... It's kind of like getting into a, 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 sorry, sliding into an a vintage car and just going like, what are all these <laughs> knobs and controls? I love it. <laughs> what know? does this switch do? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's nothing now, but it's cool. <laughs> but it's, you know, it. I think it's useful maybe in live situations where you need to take a little bit off the guitar, but still maintain the balance of the pickups. I don't know. I said me never. <laughs> <laughs> full open, full open, full open. <laughs> but uh, so that's kind of a, an oddball thing. The, the, one of the truly, um, I think, useless things that Gretsch developed was Why the, don't you talk about the mute? That's what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> Pop music. Um, so the, the string mute. <laughs> oh. It was like a piano. Well. It's probably inspired by the piano, I imagine. Very much. I mean- I find the same uselessness on Fender Jaguars uh -huh. that have a string mute. String damper. Or damper yes. mute, whatever you want to call it. It was there to, in lieu of using the palm of your hand to kind of dampen the strings, right? you would flip the switch and the mute would come up and deaden the strings. So right. You, so you could do... I was just going to say that. that. That's like the, the, you know, like sort of the... Playing the Johnny Cash rhythm on the electric. Yeah, sorta, sorta. I you guess know? I, I, I've never found any of those to be useful. In fact, any Jag that I've had, that's the first thing. Well, that, that comes they, off. well, they would that'd be wearing out so fast. I would imagine if you're using it a lot, pretty soon it's just creating grooves in it, and then well, it's just a rubber pad. Yeah, so you have to replace the. Oh, pad it's rubber. I thought it was felt. No. Okay. Interesting. No. Rubber. Okay. So well, glad we cleared that up for yeah. everybody out there. Painted no, F-holes. So yes. What so, the hell? <laughs> some models. I don't know why. That is just the it's dang dumbest thing I can think of. But well, there's the an endearing factor. To the it. only thing that I can think of the reason they did it is probably because in a live situation to prevent feedback. Mm. I I think that was actually an innovation that Chet Atkins came up with. Oh, really? I believe so. Okay. Precisely for that reason to prevent feedback. Okay. So, but why? So why paint them on? Um, because that was style? the Gretsch style. Yeah, yeah. The look. I mean, you know, George Harrison sixty one twenty two, um, the brown one. Yeah. That was his. Um, or was that a sixty one nineteen? Oh God, I can't think now. Sixty-one twenty-two. I think. Uh, can you give us a name? Uh, the country gentleman. Thank you. Uh, and it, um, the one that he used in the Beatles early on, 
it had painted F holes. Right. Uh, and again, it, it, I, I think you're right, Steve, Chet Atkins. Uh, a, a real unusual thing was the floating sound bridge unit. Um, and that is something I, I still, I've never used one. So I, maybe somebody out there has and can tell me why it's a thing. But it was a, an apparatus that was loosely based on a tuning fork that uh, went between the bridge and the neck, closer to the bridge, and it was there to supposedly increase sustain. Um, but it looks like, to me, it would actually deaden the strings. I don't know. I don't, mm. I don't, that's one I just don't get. And that didn't appear on a lot of models, but you see, you see it on some of the late 60s into the 70s. Um, and I, 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 that's one I don't get. Maybe somebody can explain that. Um, this is a good one because a lot of people think, you know, when you get into the Jet series, they had a lot of sparkle material. Mm -hmm. Even the first run of the, uh, the black uh, uh, Dua Jets, um, they had... Oh, and this is another thing. We talked about this a while back. What do you think Dua Jet means, Todd? Well, I, at first I thought it was like a double cut. Yes. But I'm assuming it's a dual humbucker. Two pickups. Right. So, yes. Okay. And there are, there are Dua Jets that have single cuts and Dua Jets that have double cuts. Which is very confusing. Yes. It, again, this is all about Gretches. Um, but the tops on those Jet models were actually drum wrap material. Interesting. So it's glued on the same stuff that they, you know, went down down the hall where they were wrapping drums. They said, "Hey, cut me a piece of that off, and uh, we'll put it on this guitar." But it rid the the very first black uh, Dua Jets also were black drum wrap material. Um, so that's kind of a cool thing. Oh, that's neat. Uh, subsequently, they finished them in black. Sure. But even the reissues now. Uh, the sparkles, uh, sparkle jets, and things like that—they are done with with drum wrap material. Interesting. I did not know that. Well, now you know. I and do. now, Todd, your favorite. Oh. The snap-on pad on the, the back. Snap-on pad on the back, <laughs> which we, which I brought up the other a couple episodes ago. Mm -hmm. um, the first time I got, I picked up a White Falcon. Yes. So some of the model lines. So um, confusing. Well, it was there for player comfort, apparently. It also provided a cover for the uh, the hatch that they used at the factory to wire these things. So if you pull a cover off on most models, especially the the semi hollows, you will find uh, a little hatch, and then yeah, it's not like there's a giant hole in the back. No, no, yeah, but it's, but that's misleading because you're like, why 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 is this thing covering up a giant hole? Yeah. That's what I couldn't figure out. Well, I mean, you see, I the, didn't I didn't pull it off because it wasn't my guitar. You see the same kind of pads on on Voxes. Uh, that was kind of a thing. It was you know it rested against your gut and you know it was nice and soft and padded. Okay. It's good for some people. Sure. Not for everyone. It, it's just, it just seemed like a, a, like it would be counterintuitive, like it would be killing the resonance of the guitar. Eh, I mean, I guess to some degree. Which is partially why you want one of those big giant guitars is like that extra. But Les Paul was able to do it by mounting a neck to a 2x4 or a 4x4. Four four. So it, really, resonance is okay. all relative. It's all about yeah, the pickup. Sure, sure. yeah. 
the other thing about the snap-on rear pads is most vintage pieces that you find today, they're either missing or they're just falling apart. And there really aren't good replacements being made out there. So, I mean, it could be an opportunity for somebody that, you know, knows the yeah. pattern of what, where the snaps are and can sew these things together. Somebody on Etsy's got to be making one. Yeah. I mean, well, Gretsch puts them on some of their models currently. Uh, not a lot of them, mm. but, um, but yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're, there's definitely a, a need for some people. Yeah. I mean, they go for big money if they're in good condition on, on the Bay of E. Todd, what would you like to talk about next? Well, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of things. Let's, let's take a, a sidetrack into the, some of the known players, you know, mm. we, we talked about like why this, but this list of players that are known is pretty extraordinary. And oh, and this I is just this is just a very small list. I mean, there's it is, but the ones on this list, for the most part, have a, have a distinct um, playing style mm-hmm. and sound. Mm-hmm. Not everybody on this list, but here's here's a couple. Um, can I? Why don't you read? Why don't you? Chet Atkins. <laughs> Goes um, without saying. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, in my opinion, he is. picking father. He's the foremost Gretsch guitar player. He's had more models named after him, has played more different styles, helped develop most of the, many of the models that are, that are out there. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's the. Eddie the, Cochran and Dwayne Eddy. We can kind of loop those guys in yeah. the same yeah, sort I mean, of that, era. Yeah, I mean, it was that same rockabilly era. Eddie Cochran, of course, was. Known for uh, summertime blues, yeah. People might remember that song. Dwayne Eddy is often uh, also credited a lot by um, British players. For, I don't know exactly, you know, why, but yeah. Well, I think that it, it is that kind of rockabilly thing. Now, Dwayne Eddy originally did play Gretsch's. He uh, subsequently uh, did a deal with uh, with Guild guitars. Yeah, basically the same guitar that Guild was making. Um, yeah, I believe he went back to Gretsch, didn't he? After, he, he might have. Yeah, I, I believe he did. Uh, we got Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley. George and, Harrison. Well, I'll go back to Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley. So Bo Diddley um, originally his first Gretsch was a Jet Firebird, which is the Jet series single cut with a red finish. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, he worked with Gretsch to develop the rectangular guitar, which he made the very first one himself, very crudely. Uh, I think it's it's in 108 guitars. Yeah, um, uh, that Lisa Johnson did, and that wasn't red; that was natural, if I if I recall. The first one he made, no, the the, the rectangular one. Yeah, but if you go back to when he first you know started recording and things like that, he played a red jet firebird. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying. The rectangle one that he made. Oh, it was it was was natural color. Yeah, it was raw but, wood. But the the Gretsch Bo Diddley model was red. correct. Yeah, yeah. And then he also did the 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 Jupiter, which again was made popular by Billy Gibbons. Yeah, that's a weird guitar. Man. It's an odd odd shape. Uh, we got George Harrison. Well, you, you go back to the very beginning. Yeah, his first was a black duo jet. Yep, riding high, playing it high. And then he, uh, you know. Went over to the you know the the country gentleman, Brian the, the Jones. Brown one. Brian Jones played several but different. Probably Gretches. more famous for the Vox teardrop. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. But there's a lot of, of photos of him playing uh, White Falcon. Yep. And Michael Nesmith, the Monkees. There you go. Let's talk a little bit about the Monkees. 
because um, Gretsch offered uh, was it United Artists or whoever did the the Monkey series, yeah, a, an endorsement deal uh, where you know they supplied the guitars for the the TV show. And those of you who don't know who the Monkeys are were, they were basically kind of a spinoff of the Beatles based in America that was kind of a combination of a hard day's night and help kind of rolled yeah, into a, a TV weekly show. TV series. Yeah, it was silly Take stuff. Last train to yeah. That's the one. Um, so Mike that's Nesmith. That's Diamond song, actually. <laughs> yeah, for real. Was it? Was it? Okay. Yeah. yeah that's good. Uh, yeah, well, Diamond wrote a bunch of stuff for yeah. that. Uh, but he had, um, you know, when you see a lot of the old monkeys things, he's playing a 12-string Gretsch, which was one of the first electric Gretsch 12-strings that yeah. they, they, they made. But they also did... He also invented MTV. Well, he did a lot. He's in, credited in the, for in inventing the, in MTV. The video and his mother invented Whiteout. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, that's a family right there. Um, don't go. I'm not, I'm not done <laughs> oh, yet. you're not done. Okay. Because they also, Gretsch re- released a series of monkeys branded guitars. Monkeys model. Yeah. Had a monkey logo on the, um, that was a on cool the pick logo. guard and a monkey's logo on the headstock. And Are those worth a lot? Vintage hoarders? Not as much as you might think. I mean, they're 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 sought after. Wouldn't they, you they, say they are sought they after? They probably made a lot of them. I bet. I don't think they made that many because what, what yeah. I'm what I'm told was um, people would order the guitars, and then they would write to Gretsch to see if they could get a plain pickguard because <laughs> they didn't want to be seen playing <laughs> yeah. the monkey's model, which is a shame because it's a great guitar. I mean, no matter how they're you going slice for it. about three three grand on uh, on. The internet right now. On That's eBay not a lot stuff. of money in my opinion. I mean, for, for a vintage no. guitar like that? No. I think that'd be cool. Okay. What else you got? What do those people know? Yeah. Uh, let's see here. What else do we have? We've got... Boy, we got a long list. We got to get through this here. Uh, Pete Townsend. Yes. Whatever. He used, he used uh, 6120 on at least two... Neil Young. Albums. Neil Young. Heard of him. Who's that? Yeah. Yes, of course. David Crosby. Stephen Stills. So the three of those so together. All, the whole Buffalo Spring, the whole Buffalo Springfield, the Birds, the, all those guys. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Malcolm Young. Yeah, that's... Mal's just gonna say Malcolm Young, man. He had a uh, just a bridge pickup in his. It's all it's all he needed. Well, the bridge pickup. But even beyond that, so that was originally a Jet Firebird. Yeah, similar to what Bo Diddley played. Only this was a double cut. Yeah. Um, over the years, he'd put various pickup combinations and if you look at his his original guitar i mean it is just literally routed out and it's it is a, a true mess yeah but it worked for him he got rid of all the switches put one pickup in wired it to the output jack and you know there you go played the rhythm guitar and the great billy duffy from the yes, Colts. there you go well that's your personal favorite right followed by billy zoom those are my dynamic duos right there yeah billy zoom from known X. for his uh, silver sparkle jet so cool. Yes, he's a cool dude. Uh, Brian Setzer, Stray Cats. That's, I mean, I, I think... Big band back. Brought... Single-handedly. Rockabilly back. Brought yeah. Gretsch back, I think, in a yeah. lot of cases. Uh, you got uh, Poison Ivy from The Cramps. Oh, yeah. The got big it. orange. Now, she was playing... Uh, what what model was she playing? I that think was, it was... It was always orange. I, I like, think it was a 6120. Really. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think it was. 
And you got uh, Jack White. Jack White, not so much in the White Stripes, but in the Raconteurs. He yep. uh, played the the triple jet, so it was a jet with three pickups in it. Right. Um, Tim Armstrong from Ranson. Yep, another. He played an old... Uh, might have been like an old town and country or anniversary or something. Like all painted black. Painted flat yeah, black. Yeah, painted flat black. <laughs> uh, Patrick Stump from Fallout Boy. Boy. Then he brought back uh, interest in the Corvette, the solid body Corvette. That uh-huh. was his uh, artist model, I think, has racing stripes on it. Yeah. It's kind of, well, you know. Uh, Dan Arbach from the Black Keys. Yeah. Again, yeah. he's, I mean, he's, he's kind known, of more famous for the Trini Lopez kind of model, though, isn't he? No. No? Okay, good. No, he's, I mean, he's uh, known for unusual guitars. Okay. Dave sure. Grohl was known for the Trini Lopez. Yeah, I don't know. I might <laughs> want to check up on your facts there. Uh, uh, you can check it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling Tony out on that one. Um, pitfalls. Let's talk about All pitfalls. Right. So let's just say you are in the market for a vintage Gretsch. I'm in the market for a vintage Gretsch, Tony. Okay. Here's what, what to What should I be watch out, watching out for? Well, first off... I suspect the binding is going to be an issue. The binding <laughs> is the issue in almost every vintage Gretsch that I've seen. That's a shame. Yeah. And again, this goes back to the, the nitrocellulose kind of falling apart. What is the number one thing you think is a pitfall on the Gretsch guitars, Steve? In terms of a vintage Gretsch? Yes. I would have to concur that it's, well, two things. Number one would be the binding. Number two would be the inconsistency with which they were manufactured or assembled. Okay. Yeah. So you you just have to be very careful of and, and, and look at the one you're thinking about buying to make sure that it's going to stay put together. Gotcha. So you'd want to email pictures to... Either Steve or Tony Balonska, if you were. <laughs> I don't know that we want to open that up, but. Well, all, all I can up. say is many. Oh, you or I, Todd. Yeah, yeah but know. send them to Jared. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jared, you to buy a Brandon, pickup guy. At, yeah. Um, I, I see a lot of problems with, with the binding, and it's, it, it's not a cheap fix. If you is if it you, all over or I mean because yeah. most uh, the, the wretches are like bound everywhere. Yeah, well, front and back, neck, it's, headstock. You know, the I, whole I nine yards. the interesting thing is I see less problems with like the glitter binding that they used on like uh, white falcons and, and things like that. Um, but oh, I mean, I just you go to a guitar show and you'll you'll just see binding rot, and you know it's not every guitar, but there's a lot of them that have that problem. Um, so if you really wanted to have a nice vintage player, you would probably look for one that's already been repaired, right? As far as the binding goes. Yeah, but or, I don't, or most things. people won't fork over the money to, to, to have the binding repaired. It's, a, it's an expensive, painful yeah. process uh, that actually devalues the guitar, th- you know, believe it or not. Naturally, um, but at least it's, but it's fixed. But it's fixed and playable and should be good for another 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the other th- pitfall uh, you'll see a lot are, are the pit guards themselves since they're made from uh, clear material, generally speaking, clear painted on the, on the backside. And it, they crack. They don't shrink so much because acrylic generally doesn't shrink. But because, you know, you put a screw into uh, yep. acrylic 
Lexan, whatever you, you you're using, you and you tighten put, it up, tighten it up, and it's going to crack. <laughs> I mean, it's just plain and simple. So I always warn people that if I make a replacement guard, I said, do not crank the screw down as tight as you can get it because it's going to be a problem. Um, I think bridge shifting. We talked a little bit about that. One of the the fixes is to pin the bridge into place. And what that means is there's two little points that go down into the top of the guitar and anchor it into, into place. And the only downside of that is if somebody pins it in the wrong spot and, you know, let's say they, they had the guitar set up with 12s and you want to play 10s, mm. the intonation is going to be off. So know what gauge strings are on that vintage instrument uh, if the bridge is pinned in place. Flat wound 13s. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, people put all sorts of things on there. All right. What's next? Um, the drum wrap tops, which we talked about a little ago, um, sometimes that material comes loose, bubbles. Um, so you just have to kind of, you know, I mean, that's pretty obvious when there's a problem. I had one that was a, actually a reissue that the, uh, the, I mean, it literally was coming off uh, around the edges. And, uh, I mean, I managed to actually heat it off, you know, use a heat gun to take it off, sand it down, and I had it refinished in black. Um, but, you know, again, that devalues the instrument. Um, so watch out for that. And then... I mean, I hate to talk poorly about an era of those guitars, but the Baldwin era guitars are just not known for high quality consistency. Um, they so get, don't even buy it. Buy at your own risk. Uh, when you say, Steve? Absolutely. I mean, there's just some weird stuff that came out in the 70s during the Baldwin era that, um, I mean, I've I've owned a couple of them, and... They're okay for a player instrument, but I, you know, in terms of, if, let's just say you want an investment instrument, that's not the era to invest in. What else is left? Lastly. 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 I'm out of breath. I need more whiskey. Whiskey for my horses. Water for my men. <laughs> Something like that. Let's talk about unsung heroes in terms of, in, in the world of Gretsch. Um, I think the first person that comes to mind is Jimmy Webster. Why? Well, he joined Gretsch pretty early on um, in the 1940s. He worked kind of part-time. He was also a piano tuner, an instructor, a recording artist. Um, in the 1950s, he came on more as a full-time person. But the coolest thing about Jimmy Webster is he was one of the earliest people to use what he called the touch system. Now, some of you people might be familiar with a gentleman by the name of uh, Edward Van Halen, who used a similar, although uncredited, system that Jimmy Webster was doing in the 1940s and 1950s. And Jimmy Webster goes a point further. Um, is that he, where Top Jimmy comes from? I don't know. I wonder. Go ahead. But um, Jimmy Webster actually credits 
Harry DeArmond, who started DeArmond Pickups, as the first person that he saw doing this touch tap kind of system and cool. using, using your thumb to play the bass lines. So it was, uh, there's some really, if you, if you do a search out there, there's some cool videos um, and some recordings. And, and, and it was one of the things when he was employed by Gretsch, when he would, you know, contribute to catalogs and different things like that, where he would, you know, discuss his method or the method he used. Uh, but above and beyond that, he's responsible for a lot of different innovations and I think what he did for Gretsch was he brought the, um, much like Chet Atkins did, but he brought um, the angle of, a, of an artist and thing, cool things that you could do on the, uh, with, with, the, in, with the guitars and, and the electronics and different things like that. So, gotcha. So that's why I'm calling him an unsung hero. Um, my second unsung hero is Duke Kramer. Now, Duke was um, uh, hired in the 1930s. As I, I just re reread all this stuff. And he was really early on. Um, and he would, you know, eventually became, became like floor manager and, and different things like that. Maybe, you know, I know that he was heavily, heavily involved, at least through the 1960s. Um, he kind of retired um, after the... Uh, uh, Baldwin debacle. Um, he was actually brought back on. Now imagine at this time he's probably probably in his sixties or seventies. And the cool thing about him is he helped reestablish in the in the nineteen eighties into the nineties the the Gretsch product line because he had you know probably an encyclopedic uh, memory of things that Gretsch did over the years, thinking from the 1930s to the now the 1980s, that's yeah. a 50-year span there. Um, but what was really cool is after he retired for a second time, he had a ton of parts and things. He moved, ended up in Cincinnati. And he had you know, anybody that needed uh, Pickups, necks, unfinished bodies, different things like that. He had a warehouse apparently wow. filled with this stuff in Cincinnati. Uh, I think it's, I'm sure now it's all long gone. Uh, but it's, uh, he, he was just, you know, he was a, apparently a pretty cool guy. And uh, in a lot of the, you know, he's interviewed pretty heavily in a lot of the, the Gretsch books that are available out there. And he's got a, a pretty cool story. All right. Who else you got? Well, we talked a little bit about Ray Butts. Yep. Um, you know, arguably uh, the first or second person to develop the uh, commercial humbucking pickup. Um, so I think you know he you know he he's often not credited. So I wanted to just give him a little credit. We yes. get really talked quite a bit about him. He gets none. <laughs> uh, well, none for me anyway. You can credit him all you want, old buddy. I will. Um, and lastly, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Dan Duffy, and he was brought into Gretsch in the 1950s uh, as initially as, as like a quality control guy. And I think the one thing that um, I mean, he obviously had other positions after that. And he, again, he's another guy that was interviewed pretty heavily in, in books. Um, but he, um, I think he shared some stories in the in the interviews where 
Um, and I think it speaks volumes about what, uh, between Duke Kramer, who was there at the time, and some of the other management team, they were really, really focused on quality control at a time when quality control really didn't exist, if you want to call it that. Um, and, and I think one of the things that he did, uh, you probably anybody that's bought a Gretsch have seen the little hang tag that has the uh, quality control checks and it has people's initials and check marks and right. different things like that. Uh, he helped establish that program. And uh, there was a time apparently where uh, they were having problems with shrinkage and, and problems with finishes, especially on the White Falcon line. And um, the water was cold. <laughs> it probably was. Um, he, um, he shared a story about how the entire management team came together to fix the problems. And they, you know, any kind of manufacturing. I mean, they're in Brooklyn, New York, making guitars. Um, and, you know, it's cold in the winter, hot in the summer. Yeah. And, you know, so it's it, it, it's an interesting thing, but I think it spoke volumes, at least the, the stories that I read, that, you know, they were really committed at that time, especially in the 50s and 60s. And those certainly are the classic years, in my opinion, and probably most people's opinion for Gretsch guitars. All right. So I got a couple questions just for uh, Tony, you, and, uh, and Steve. Okay. As far as the Gretsch guitars go. We've talked about all aspects of them. We've even talked about like, you know, the id factor. For you, what is the magic that Gretsch holds for you? Steve, how about you? <laughs> I would go back to, I suppose, what I said earlier. It's, for me, the, the magic is, I like the, the tactile dimension yeah. of, of a Gretsch because it is big. And, you know, I'm, I'm six foot four, so, I like a big guitar, right? Uh, so there, there is that element. Was there uh, of the people that have played them throughout history? Did you lock onto one person where you said, "Ooh, that's the one"? I, I, I kind of want to know what that's like. I think what brought my attention to Gretsch was David Crosby of the Birds, George Harrison of the Beatles, uh, Neil Young, and Stephen Stills of Buffalo Springfield, right? And that, to me, kind of moved Gretsch from strictly a country-based or country-focused instrument. Uh, that that brought it into the rock era for me, or the rock dimension, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I can see that, because there, there, that was a pretty big leap from Chet Atkins to any to of those Young, guys you yeah. just named. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Tony? I mean, the ornamentation that you talk about, I mean... Generally speaking, I don't like gold hardware. I don't like a lot of fancy things. Why not, buddy? <laughs> just that's just me. But I, I will gold. say, you look at a White Falcon, for instance. It's stunning. It is. Uh, it's more than a guitar. It's a piece of art. It, yeah. And I mean, they've packed everything they can into it. Um, they're. You know, it's still essentially the same guitar as you know, as a like whether it's a single cut or double cut. It's it's in the same realm of of those things. But um, just, I mean, it is so so over the top. I mean, the sparkle binding, the the you know the the gold hardware. It's just all the knobs, all the switches. It's 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 just 
It's almost unapologetically garish. Yeah. 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 I would say that's a fair assessment. Um, so again, uh, find a, a, ideally it's, it's somewhere you can drive to hold the guitar, look it over, play it. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of great places in, in, you know, a lot of great dealers in the, in across the country, uh, that you can do just that. And, you know, I don't think it's going to set you back a, a ton of money, but, um, if you're looking for a, what I would call a decent bargain, uh, look for the, you know, the nineties, the, uh, early two thousands, Japanese, uh, Tarada made, they'll have a, a serial number that begins with the letter T or JT. Uh, I forget which there's, they did them, I think both ways. And those are fantastic instruments. Um, a lot of people buy even some of the newer models. I've done it myself, and pop in TV Jones pickups, yeah, or some other good Filtertron pickup, um, because some of the lower line models, the pickups aren't as good. Um, but you know, there that's a it's a good uh, pathway. I know Steve. Well, it's done the same thing as buying getting a you know like a um, an Epiphone or, or a uh, Squire or something like well, that. The Japanese There's be... really. They make well, really I mean, the, the low. I'm talking about the like the entry model. Yeah, like the yeah. 2000 Crutches. series or yeah. the five, even the 5000 series. In fact, um, in in some cases you have to. There's an adapter plate which uh, TV Jones actually makes if you want to mount his traditional uh, Filtertrons mm. into one of those era models. They call them an adapter. Yeah, <laughs> adapter kits. Adapter. Uh, all right. Well. Uh, hopefully you, you are all enlightened. I know I learned quite a bit, um, and I'm excited by these guitars still. Um, hope to have one someday. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so, and if, if you have ones that you especially like, please share them, send them out, like give us a holler, say I love this. And yeah. All right. Well, uh, we know this one was long. Hopefully you're still listening, but we think it was worth it because there was an awful lot to talk about. Um, and uh, it's getting late. However, we are still going to jump into the El Camino and hit the road uh, and swing by Jared's house, and he's going to take us for a ride. Ladies and gentlemen, as you step out of the Camino to my house, I would like to uh, read a Would You Rather from executive producer... Don Kloss, would you rather? So Don asks the question, a serious would you rather, serious. if you like to consider it in that way. He owns a Dan Electro convertible that he was told was made sometime between 63 and 67. He got it at a flea market for 15 bucks. It's mm, a good deal. Yeah. Inside... It has a stamp serial number of 2036, so 2036. I would like to use it, but the stock bridge is really useless, and the stock tailpiece is also pretty much garbage and has surface rust on it. When I play it, it sounds like a combination between a banjo and an acoustic guitar that has a cardboard box for a body. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so would you rather... Put upgraded hardware on this thing. Try to restore it. Or should it just be a historical conversation piece 
with his collection. And he says, thanks in advance for your, for your answers. And he tells us to keep on nodding. Yeah. So let's help him out, man. Let's 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 so do is that. Is this a three choicer? It's a two choicer. Either a historical conversion or a conversation piece. Keep it the way it is. Or, as is. Or yeah. Or actually upgrade it. Now and 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 ruin the historical value possibly. I don't know. So the the Dan Electro convertible um, is sort of like a a, a double cut. Um, and people are probably familiar with the recent Telecaster, the, the Fender that was like acoustic, but it was like, you know, electric size body that came out. That was really popular about what, like three, three years ago that I think that's it kind of broke out at Nam. Um, similar in fashion, it is a very thin body. And also the Dan Electro is at those, those are composite bodies, right? So it's a thin composite body with a with a a, a, rel- a relatively small acoustic hole in it with a lipstick pickup bridging it. Correct. So this is a, a little bit of an oddball guitar. Pl- I'm curious. I've never heard one. I I can't imagine they sound awesome. I I I think they would kind of sound a little weird, right? Maybe I'm wrong. Well, they they sound explained awesome. it. Do they? It sounds like a. Uh... An acoustic guitar that has a cardboard box for a body. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, but it's still it's still a unique piece, um, and a lot. Uh, you know, they came in various styles and colors, but mostly light colored. Yeah. Seems like. Yeah. Um, there's a couple with the antique, the antique sort of blue, uh, Dan Electro. They they did on the the uh, Longhorn. As well, right? Well, they did a copper burst, and I mean, there are also some reissues of the convertible, yeah, that are out there too, yeah, which are actually, you know, probably better made. Yeah, I mean, here's the problem with old Dan Electros: is it is masonite top and back, and a poplar frame, and as time goes on, time is not kind to uh, masonite. Um, yeah. But that being said, I think Mick Jagger said that. Yeah, I think so. Time is not kind. Time is not kind yeah. to Masonite. You've probably heard that song before. Okay, keep going. I will. Um, but the, the the model of the guitar is actually pretty cool. Now, I would probably assume. Let's just assume that the neck is in good shape. The body is in relatively good shape. It's solid. It's not, you know, caving in or anything like that. I think it would be a good candidate to uh, to try to do a restore on. Um, there are some replacement parts, mostly because there were, um, you know, the the reissues were were out there. I guess back in the nineties. Gosh, the two thousands. I can't even remember. Nineties, I believe. Yeah. And uh, so, so you might be able to find some of the parts. This particular guitar has kind of a unique bridge in terms of what um, uh, Dan Electro was using. I mean, some of the old, you know, original series, the U2s and things like that, they basically have a piece of rosewood uh, mounted to a piece of metal that you can raise and lower. Uh, this one, at least, is kind of a uh, – it actually has a saddle on it, I think. And um, – very rudimentary guitar. Uh, they always were. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, this one's especially, it seems like. Yeah. But it's got a lipstick yeah. in the, in yeah, the yeah, neck yeah, position. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, if, if that doesn't work, you know, if you can't, if it still doesn't sound good, hell, right, route out and put another pickup near the bridge. Why not? Okay. So you're, that's what you're doing? I'm going to restore it. You're going to restore it. All right. Uh, Steve, what are you doing? I, I think I'd concur with Tony. I, I think I'd restore it rather than try to convert it into something gig-worthy. Uh, you know, if you, if you want a gig-worthy guitar, get a gig-worthy guitar and, and keep, keep the historicity of this one intact. Mm. That's a $20 That's word. A, yeah. Is it? Historic, just coined historistory. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got one of those about 20 years ago. <laughs> Damn. That was painful too. Wasn't it? <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> no one is Jared, safe. Jared, what are you doing? I think it depends. Just like Tony and Steve say, if it's a candidate, then I think I would definitely restore it just to see what it's got. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, just it, not. I couldn't not know what it's going to sound like in good condition. Yeah, and it's not something that you'd want to put a, like a tunematic bridge or something on, or you know whatever. Yeah, don't happened. carve it all up and screw it all up. Just if you can find hardware that fit on the guitar without altering the, you know, the actual guitar to lose its value, then by you know I probably wouldn't do it. But you know to keep its value, unless you were gonna, you knew you're gonna keep it forever, but you don't want to butcher it all up just to see what it sounds like. I mean. What? You know, find the find the right tools to restore it properly or leave it alone. That's exactly what I would do. So both. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> whatever uh, whatever it takes. Good candidate. I'm gonna hang it on the wall you know, and yeah. fix it up. Well it, it, the reason I'm I'm giving this answer is because he's you know, our our guy here, Don, he really wants to know what to he do does. With this. this is a true this is a true thing he yeah this, so this is his scenario it's for real yeah let's yeah. not play with so this man's like, life ladies and gentlemen i know so that that's my answer right there yeah you know and, and make believe land i, I get it in a working condition I, period. I, restore it, do it. I, guess. I, I don't need any wall hangers i think that's a it's a guitar. Figure out what it does. Play yeah. it. Make it. Get it. Get it. Play already. Yeah. Have some fun. That's if you right. don't like it, sell it. Bada bing, bada boom. Is that your answer? That's my answer. Final answer. Locked in. All right, Tony. We got to thank a few people before yes, we, we do, run Todd. out of tape on yeah. this and vocal cords show. So uh, you know, at this point of the show, there's a special group of people we like to thank. Mm-hmm. These people make the show possible. These are our executive producers. That's right. Now, you might want to become one of these special people. Go over to patreon.com forward slash the guitar knobs. Check out a couple of levels in, you can, in which you can participate, become a sponsor, a patron of this very podcast. Uh, there's some really great thank you prizes. But you know what's the best thing, Todd? What? Jared? You get to have your name read on the thing. Your name read on the thing. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Uh, Moon Guitars, Vader and Pedals, Drew Lopez, John Halverson, Rick Calhoun, Trevor Gunberg, Elad Mizrahi, Jason Rausch, Mike D, Richard Kendall, Mark Garten, Matt Hart, James White, Justin Jones, Anthony Gemalero, 
Bill Gola Guitars, John Estelle, Anthony Latherup, Stefan Lamb, Michael Senchuk, Ken Sayers, Doug Christ, Darren Gregory, John Anglin, Tom Brazen, Rusty Sneeden, Ralph Gottschalk, David Poe, Don Kloss, Gregory Randall, Brett Hogarth. Mm. Yes. Are you interrupting me, Todd? No. Oh, I didn't think you were, because there's another group of executive producers. I've learned my lesson. We call them our grand poobas. These fine people have a fez to place upon their cap. <laughs> you like that one, don't you? I love it. He loves it. <laughs> An orange one. An orange one. So special, special, special thanks to these grand poobas. Tommy Manasco, Ricardo Igreda. David Kaminga, Brandon Wound Pickups. That's right. Hex Matos, Michio Murakishi, Bob Crouch, Jack Cadian, Sam Jett, Tyler Rines, LSJ Music Company, John Williams, James Pennington, Adam Johnson, Steve Keys, Cody Foster, Science of Sound. Brian Robison, Jonathan Jeruzic, Corey Nagro, Michael Van Zant, Tim Nowak, John Daly, Martin Cliff, Sean S. S. And Eddie Serratos. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Indeed. So much better when you do it, Tony. It is. It's so much better. Um, <laughs> so. Tony, where can people find what you need? Head over to pickguardian.com. Check out some of the stuff that I have available for sale. I do a lot more custom work than anything. So shoot me an email. Let me know what you need, what you're trying to do. And I will probably have some good advice for you. So once you're ready to order, I will take very good care of you. Excellent. Uh, Steve, I, I know that um, you've got this thing that you mentioned at the beginning. Is that, uh, what, is that what do you need to say? I would just encourage everyone to check out columbushistory.org, and if you're able to attend the uh, exhibit, by all means do so. It's an hour or so well spent. I think uh, I think I think you really enjoy it. All right. How much longer? Do, how much longer is that going to be available, uh, Jared? I believe it's going to run through Labor Day. That's the plan. This, at this, I point. will be there to go see it. Excellent. I'm very very interested. Excellent. All Look right. Forward to seeing you there. Uh, Jared, where can people find you? Jared.allen.brandon on Insta. And uh, I may not m uh, message you back right away, but I will check and will answer back if you have any questions for me. And uh, I look forward to your inquiries. You can send me an email, Todd at the guitar .com. You can also DM me on Instagram at guitar knobs. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, give us your feedback on this particular episode send pictures of gretches send pictures of gretches and whatnot Yay. or just tag us in your pictures of gretches why yes. not yeah. that'd be cool too hey everybody have a fantastic guitar week thanks for hanging out with us for so long and subscribe yeah. steve well let's talk about gretch guitars. pull the mic out of your mouth for pete's sake so we can hear your stomach <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind looking stupid I just don't want to look like a fool Okay Should I start over? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Jared, what do you have for dinner? Everything uh, <laughs> Zach's
<laughs> Steve. Chicken. Like chicken. Chickens. That's what I like to hear. Oh, that's no, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't find my mouth. Sorry. Okay, that's good. Wait, never good enough for Tony Bagani. I'm a seasoned professional. I need a certain level in order to. Apparently. Steve. Well, that's it for these knobs. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the guitar knobs. Visit our website at theguitarknobs.com for all of our past episodes, four on the floor blog, and other good stuff. You can connect with us on social too at our Facebook page and share your gear and stories on our Facebook group. Also, be sure to check out our Instagram at guitar knobs. Catch you next time.